0: Welcome back to Employee of the Month. I'm your host, Katie Lazarus, and on this episode, I had the pleasure of sitting down with the comedian and comedy writer, Elliot Kalin, who is now going to be the head writer of The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. He has been there forever in various forms. Forever. He's actually been there since um, 7 BCE. He has been at The Daily Show since his beginning as a uh, comedian, and um, it's exciting to see the show transform and hear about it from his perspective, as well as hear about what it's like to um, be a columnist at the Morning Daily Metro. That wasn't sad with the the amount of gravitas that it deserved because I would love to have a golem, so I shouldn't I shouldn't balk at it. Um, I also do want to encourage you to check out the Flop House, which is his podcast um, with his buddies Dan McCoy and Stuart Wellington, and it is super fun. Uh, they watch and mock movies. They still have not done one of my favorites called Tiptoes. I know that they will soon. I know that they will take that recommendation into consideration and get to it I will encourage you to watch tiptoes as well but only after you find out what it means to really work as a comedy writer and how hard it can be even even for the uh, best of folks who are the most talented the most lovely it is still a marathon and not a uh... I I wanted to finish the cliche but then just the idea of of comedy writers doing athletics I know some of them can it's just (laughs) it's I just keep imagining Woody Allen at the the starting line uh, next to Head and Head with Tegla LaRoupe and Carl Lewis and be like, what is this? I give up. And walking home. Uh, Elliot did not give up. He continued, luckily for all of us, because he is just such a, a joy, hilarious, and a treat. Oh, and if you do get a chance, you should also check him out on YouTube when he was contending for Andy Rooney's slot. So without further ado, here's my interview with Mr. Elliot Caleb. Um, I do feel like the actor studio, Also, the one thing he does is he tells you back to you. Yes. Like, he tells you who you are back to your face.
1: He tells you what you've (laughs) done in your life and where you're from and who you are. And I guess because it's just known as, like, his trademark now, when actors go on the show, they're okay with it. Yes. But I wonder if the first people who came on his show ever were like, why are you telling? Yeah, I know. Like, in in 1997, you appeared in, like, yeah, okay, I know. (laughs) Like, I didn't remember what year it was, but I knew I made that movie, you know. So. In
0: nineteen eighty one you appeared in your mother's womb.
1: Yeah. <laughs> that would be if he was doing me, yeah.
0: Was that the right year?
1: Yeah, yeah, nineteen eighty one. Oh yes! You were dead on. You were dead on. I'm impressed. In you should be doing you shouldn't be doing a podcast. You should be doing like a carnival booth. Where you guess people's birth years.
0: When you appeared in your mother's womb, what were you thinking,
1: Elliot? Uh I don't remember. Probably something about being crowded. I was I'm a twin. I have a twin sister, so it was just, I had half as much space as a normal person would have inside of their mother.
0: I didn't so. know that you were a twin. Yeah,
1: yeah. And she, she is not in entertainment. She is in a, she's a lawyer for Bank of America uh, and does very good work there. So. What does
0: she do in terms of, of work there?
1: Um, I can't remember exactly. I shouldn't use her nice. name. I should. I feel like I shouldn't say. Oh,
0: because you want to. You want to keep, keep her life private. Because exactly. She, she's chosen. Because to she's have a normal she has life. not
1: chosen to be to be a to be a, to, yeah, to be a public person who, who does interviews and things like that.
0: Oh, so she has like integrity and, and has some confidence and.
1: Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, she has a real life and doesn't need constant approval from the world in the form of like mentions on different on people's webpages and things like that.
0: Did she come out first?
1: I came out... For, well, we were born cesarean, and I was pulled out first. You were
0: pulled out for You know yeah. that for a fact, or do you feel like they just told you that after to soothe your ego?
1: I mean, I don't know why they would <laughs> bother to tell me. It's been... They've been saying that forever, so...
0: It's interesting, isn't it?
1: Yeah, but what it meant was that she...
0: Elliot will need to know this.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she positioned herself as the middle child as soon as our younger brother was born. We had a younger brother who was about three and a half years younger than us, but I was born 10, 30 seconds before her, so really there's no middle child, but she took that to me and I'm the eldest, she's the middle and that meant she could say things like oh I was the I was the baby until our brother was born and now I'm the middle child. No one cares about the middle child.
0: I'm big on the, that syndrome as well. Mm-hmm. And it is funny that you you really do choose these perceptions of birth order versus it being birth order that chooses one's perception of one's like I know yeah. plenty of first children who are the best and the brightest and and everything that that sort of stereotypical about it, but I also know some black sheep and some flounders. And yeah,
1: and she's also, she has the, she's the most educated of the three children in my yes, family. Well, like, got to remember where the bar She's was the set. most professional. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's like, so she, the idea that she's like the middle child did that nobody, that pays attention to is totally incorrect, you know. She's I the mean, only one of us who could be said to be, to have a profession, you know, which is something impressive. What does your impressive. younger brother do? He is a, a writer and editor for the NHL website, NHL.com. Uh-huh. And, uh... He is a sports writer basically? Okay. So yeah.
0: And I can see how no one would consider you having a profession since you are now the head writer of the Daily. Yes,
1: or will be. I will. I don't know when this oh, is sorry. when you release this. I will be in roughly mid-January, late January. Okay. It's been announced and said, but I'm going to be on. Uh, I'm going to be on leave for a little bit, and then. Paternity Go.
0: leave.
1: Yes. Uh, parental leave. Parental leave. <laughs>
0: what does paternity leave sound like? It sounds like a leave of absence from paternity. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. I'm gonna be. I'm gonna be getting out as quickly as I can. But and then when I return, I'll be taking over as head writer of the show. So I'd spent uh, this the, the week before we recorded this. I spent shadowing the current head writer.
0: Barry Julian.
1: No. Uh, Tom, Tim Carvell. Tim Carvell. Barry Julian. He used to be. Headwriter writer at Colbert Report. I apologize. Yeah, yeah that's okay. And now Opus Moreski is, is head, right the head there. writer there. Yeah, and I saw him. I passed him on the street a couple days ago, and he was very. Busy. He had to get to work. Like we were both going to work, and he just like I waved and he waved back, and he kept going. And I want to be like, no, like we're in the same club now, <laughs> or we will be. Like what, stop, what? it's okay. Let's
0: can we talk about it for a, a lot of it because I wanted to know. I mean, particularly because you've had the. Very traditional, yet also the exception to the rule in late-night comedy shows, even though it's, I would say, much more common in sitcoms and dramedies, where you go from being a PA to a segment producer to a writer. You know, uh huh. Um, with late-night comedies, it seems you can be a stand-up and then get hired. Or,
1: Yeah, I don't know. It's I, I honestly, because I've only worked at, at this point, I've only worked at The Daily Show. I started there as an, I, as an intern my last semester of college, and I've been working there since then.
0: And this is at Tisch?
1: Yeah, yeah. There? I went to NYU at the dramatic writing program in Tisch, which is now... Can you
0: say it more dramatically?
1: At the dramatic writing program. Now I believe you. Before, see, I wasn't you. sure
0: if you really went there. <laughs> they took Actually,
1: they gave, we had to take one acting class to show us what it was like to be an actor, since that's who we'd be writing for. And I was so like, not into it and so terrible at it. And uh, I really could have gotten more out of that class, if I think, if I had paid attention. I was, like, too cool to do the stupid acting exercises where it was like, now I'm going to say a word, and you walk around the room personifying that word, and the word would be, like, you know, like, suspicious, you know, or something like And you have to say the word while you're walking around acting it out. And I think I, like, sat in a chair <laughs> and just didn't do anything the whole exercise.
0: This makes me feel so much better because any early foray into trying... Uh, acting or improv, I was so uh, either repulsed or, or um, scared, and I couldn't tell which was going on
1: for Now me. I think I'd be able to do it because it no longer had would have any effect on my idea of myself or my self-esteem. Yes. Like if someone sees me and I look stupid now, I don't really care. Yes. But when I was younger, I really cared a lot. And uh, so now I look back and I was like, oh, I could have had more fun with that at least, you know?
0: Totally. And it, I, I, when I say to my discredit, it... it only as I get more comfortable with my own skin, that I get yeah. um, better in comedy. But by the same token, I would say when I first started, it was great because I wasn't thinking about it. Uh huh. Oh, and then there's that like there's the middle period of like oh now I'm trying to make a living from this and I became self-conscious and then really like, go back.
1: Once it matters, yeah, you start think- overthinking things. Yes. It's like when you when you don't think you have a chance of achieving success, you're like whatever I'll do whatever it exactly. doesn't matter. And then when there's a chance, you start overthinking things. And then once you get to the point where you Feel confident, and you're a little successful. It's like, oh, okay, I'll do whatever again, you know. But there's that period of horrible, constant questioning and self-doubt, and like you're just visible enough that people can criticize you, but you're not so visible that people won't miss you. Still, yes. I guess it's some way, one way to put it. Well, let's know. start
0: off at the beginning with you, and then we'll get back to talking about the Daily Show and, okay. and, and head writing. So, like you
1: were saying, the year was 1981. The
0: 1981 you were born. I was born. I was um, a normal
1: child. Uh, what
0: does that
1: mean? Uh, nothing abnormal, and not no extra limbs, or you know, like schizophrenia or multiple personality disorder, or anything like that. You know, just a uh, just like a regular kid. Like I fit a lot. I fall into a lot of the stereotype boxes of your like Jewish East Coast, you know, like New York, New Jersey, middle class kid. You know, going continuing as I grew older. And today, when I fall into so many different stereotypes, there was uh, there was a. <laughs> There's one year that I worked at uh, Suncoast Motion Picture Company, which is a video retail store that I don't know if it still exists anymore. But uh, it was only sales; they didn't rent videos. They only sold VHS tapes. And while I started working, when I was working there, they started bringing in DVDs. But but VHS tapes were still the majority of the of the business. And I was one of the few white people on staff at this particular store. And I remember, like, I wanted to save up a lot of my money and I didn't wasn't interested in, like, hanging out in a mall, which is where the store was. So on my lunch hour, I would just, like, go in the back, and I would bring, like, cheese sandwiches I had made at home and just read while I ate them and then go back on to work. And at the same time, the movie The Original Kings of Comedy came out. Yes. And there was a joke in it about white people and black people doing different things on break. And one was, and they mentioned how white people just go in the back and eat their cheese sandwiches they brought in from home. And everyone on staff was like, that's you, they're talking about you. So I think that's when I really realized that I fit most stereotypes about myself, so.
0: Uh, Were your parents... Um, funny and were they interested in the arts because it sounds like both you and your brother are writers
1: they are funny people I mean they tell jokes and like they do things that are ridiculous but not always meaning to but like my dad unwittingly
0: amusing versus wittingly
1: both like sometimes wittingly amusing and sometimes unwittingly like uh, my dad was in sales and marketing for many years and now teaches sales and marketing at Rutgers and my mom was a homemaker for most of my time growing up she was in television on the, like, accounting and executive side for a little bit. Then she became a stay-at-home mom, and then now she's a librarian. And so, like, really what, it, what was around a lot was books. Like, books and reading. It's a whole family of readers. My grandmother's a librarian. My my uh, And my dad's mother actually was a writer. She wrote educational supplements for, like, the New York Times that would go out to schools and things like that. We
0: still have; they still have those.
1: Yeah, yeah. She doesn't write them anymore, but uh, but she but like she would write like the her script. Her
0: legacy is carrying on.
1: Yes, which I'm very happy about. Yeah, she she write would write like also scripts for like educational film strips or like educational videos. Like they would give her the information and she would write the script for it. And she always wanted to be like a novelist or a short story writer. And on the other side, like my uncle, my mother's brother wants to be a novel. And he's written novels that have not been published yet, but he was a surgeon who w- wanted to be a novelist. And so it was more growing up in a wor- in world where books and writing were kind of always around. And like they would take us to plays a lot and to movies and we'd go to art museums and things like that. It was a very cultural household. It's, yeah, in that way.
0: It, everything resonates. My grandmother is a librarian. And she, oh, I didn't know that. She was an expert in Dickens. And also would write, but not fully commit to it. And I think it's just a generational thing, and also this sort of immigrant mentality of of also having the safety of more professional yeah jobs. You know, when you mentioned the surgeon and, and also and,
1: being and and being a woman who was a writer at that time was much more difficult than it is now. Like you were either like, I feel like you, if you were a woman writer who became successful, you were kind of had to be an eccentric in some way. Sing you it, like, sister. Sing it. Yeah, you were like. <laughs> either someone like Dorothy Parker, who was like, you know, crazy jazz age baby and everything, but were like depressed inside, or you were like Willa Cather or Eudora Welty or Carson McCullers, like living in some far off part of the country where the people around you considered you something of an eccentric, you know, like, it was very hard to be... And
0: not just in this country. I think you're being, being um, isolationist. I mean, a lot of them were in Canada.
1: Oh, is that is that true? No, oh, I know. It was very. It was much more difficult. I mean, there
0: may have been some in Canada.
1: Yeah,
0: Addie. But but as soon as you mentioned the sort of faraway places, I always like think of Nova Scotia or something.
1: Well, it was almost like you could. You had you. It was hard to be in a hard to raise a family and to and be a writer as a woman and hard to just be get a female career unless it was like there there was something like, weird enough about you that people would be like, okay, she's a woman, but she's, like, off a little bit. So it's okay for her to be a writer, you know? Completely.
0: Yeah, and I I think it's also interesting to see, like, the ways that you are, you as an individual, you, Elliot, are um, such a voracious consumer of film Mm -hmm. and TV and then, um, well, particularly film, but, like, you know, when you do, like, the Flophouse podcast and, and you enjoy consuming it, and I would say that there is an edification there going on as well, that this is, like, clearly your passion as a oh, comedian, yeah. um, but also learning about the history of your field.
1: Yeah, it's well, it's, there's something very exciting about learning how a thing came to be what it is, you know, and uh, with movies especially, for me, but even, like, uh, I have no interest in a lot of different sciences and things like that, but the history of those things they is They have no interest in you, by the way. Also. Yeah, which I'm glad to hear. <laughs> it is mutual. I do not want to be a physicist, that's for sure. They my wife's my wife's family, uh, she her grandfather's cousin is a physicist who like won the Einstein prize and things like that. He's a well known physicist and I tried reading up on some of his just on Wikipedia, like what he'd worked on. I had no idea like even the Wikipedia entry I had no idea what, what to make of it, heads or tails, you know, it made no sense to me. So I think I'm gonna stay with jokes and not not get into the hard sciences.
0: So let's go back a little bit to... It sounds like you really... Yeah,
1: let me... I apologize for going off on any oh, no, no, too I long don't, tangents. I don't mind. You know?
0: we'll, we'll, we'll return to all of these scintillating subjects minus uh, physics only because you and I can't talk about it. Yeah, we would um, be
1: totally lost in a It'll be well, a we silent could, podcast. We could <laughs> talk about it, but every moment we'd be like, I might be getting this wrong, but we're like, oh, somebody correct me on this. Like, I can't say for sure, but maybe...
0: But just to give you some background, I, I went to a very arty-farty high school and then Wesleyan, and in high school I remember taking... Um, Weimar Germany through Nazism on film. But, okay, but never took physics. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's fine.
0: Who needs? But thank goodness I know all of. All think about, about
1: it. how much more you've learned. You've used, used <laughs> your knowledge of the Weimar Republic yes. than you'd That's ever right. use about physics. Because here's the great thing about physics: is that it's going to work even if you don't know about it. And I think about this when I'm if I'm taking the train over the subway train over a bridge, and you can see the light the sun reflecting onto the water and it reflects in patterns and you can see the patterns and it's like I don't know how that works but the sun and the water know how it works so it's great I don't have to worry about it like physics is not relying on me to make sure it happens so like if I don't know how really how gravity works it's okay like it's going to keep working without it as opposed to like I Knowing like how
0: Metropolis was made, the film why exactly. it was made, why it's so chipper.
1: If people forget and that, so happy. Yeah, <laughs> if people forget about that, then no one will know. It'll just be gone. But like, if people don't know how the stars work, we're still gonna have stars. <laughs> like
0: this that's not much.
1: relying on us.
0: Speaking of stars, uh, you have a genuine friendship with Anne Hathaway that you like to put in your Wikipedia. No, that's totally.
1: It. That's I did not put that in there. She was a year behind me in high school, and uh, her mother and my mother are were friendly. You know, so in the same way, in the way that like if you ran into someone at the supermarket, you'd say hi and what's new, you know. And but uh, that's come up on the flop house a number of times, and so some anonymous flop house fans decided to add that to my IMDb entry and to my Wikipedia entry even though there's no fact to it whatsoever.
0: Well, it's also just, I love it, because if you were genuine friends, you wouldn't need to It would never be noticed. (laughs) Like, why would I say it? Yeah. And then, so I thought it was a joke, because it seems sort of similar to, uh, you know, at the end of Jimmy Kimmel's show, when he would thank Matt Damon Mm -hmm. every time. And um, I've had uh, Danny Strong, who's been on, employee of the month but he was supposed to do two live shows and both times he did not show for the two live shows mm-hmm. and so I was like I wish you were a little more famous to Danny so that like <laughs> I just keep having you on every poster and people would be like oh that's so funny that's the joke yeah <laughs> and now instead I get like one or two people come up after every live show and they're like so was Danny Strong going to be on the show <laughs>
1: and I have to be like yeah no. if, it was, if he was big enough that it would be like ridiculous <laughs> enough to claim like if you said like and Bill Clinton like people would yes. be like of course that's a joke right
0: <laughs> I Unfortunately, they're just like okay. So like two of his friends will show up at the show <laughs> and be like, "I thought you you broadcast that Danny Strong will be on."
1: This. But that's it's just become part of the rich mythology of the flop house over the past you know seven or so years that we've been doing it, or six years that like that this this very complicated relationship that I supposedly had with her filled in over time by people writing in letters I don't know if you have this where people write letters into your podcast where they make up stories about things that you've done yes. or like okay because that's they do that a lot with us where people will write in and be like I imagine this happened and then tell a story about you or one of the me or one of the other co-hosts where it's like they're just writing a short, like, fiction about us now, and there's no real reason for them to do that. I really like it a lot. I enjoy it,
0: too. But unfortunately, because I'm a woman, or fortunately, I don't know, it depends, Um, it's more about who I'm doing versus uh, what I'm doing.
1: There's less of that. We got a story like that once. (laughs) Really?
0: You you guys don't get hit on as much? That's so funny. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I do want to tell people, for listeners who don't know The Flophouse, um, to please check it out. There are many satirical podcasts out there, but yours is particularly charming um, and edifying uh, simultaneously, and it is about terrible movies and how they get made, but it's it's often very thorough in the way that it does it.
1: Yeah, well, we, we watch a movie, and then the podcast is talking about the movie we just watched, and we try to go through the plot and what made it bad, but we also get really distracted by usually one of us mispronouncing a thing, which turns into pretending that that was said correctly and what that would mean and, and it's like we go off on the on tangents a lot but it's amazing it's literally a show that that uh my friends Dan McCoy and Stuart Wellington started doing with another friend of theirs uh and that friend moved away and they brought me in as a replacement and the whole point of it was just to like have a reason to regularly hang out and like see each other and just through doing it a lot we've gotten better at it and like a, we have a like a really good number of listeners now and to the and I don't really what's know what's that
0: number when you say a really good number
1: I don't I don't want to give out trade secrets but you know like you know in an, an episode will no, get da- trade well but like an episode will get downloads into the like tens of thousands Fabulous. you know which is something that I don't know who these people are who want to hear us Isn't yammering that on yeah. I like listening to it but it's like me it's like if I, it's like I hung out with two of my best friends and then rec- and recorded it, and then like I can listen to it later and it's like, oh, we're, this is what it was like when we were having fun hanging out, you know. Yes. But But uh, other people s- seem to like it a lot too, which I think is great. But uh, it's just a surprise, it's always a surprise when you do something for fun and it becomes something other people want to tune into, the joy which of is being the known, best.
0: the joy of being known never gets old.
1: Yeah, I guess so, I mean until the day when uh, I can't, when I'm mobbed, when I can't even go to a restaurant, you know. Because everybody is like, oh, I, I recognized your voice.
0: But you aspire to that as well. I mean, you've spoken, I remember, in, in an interview with J.R. Havlin about wanting to um, do your job at The Daily Show, but also move on to do other things as well. Yeah.
1: it's. I mean, I have an ambition that I have come to terms with at this, this point, where I kind of grew up, I think, assuming that it was wrong to be ambitious, that, like, you didn't want to—to to want to be well-known or well-respected or recognized was presumptuous— and I've come to terms with that, that, like, to get ahead, I need a certain amount of ambition. And I want to get ahead because I want to do something that's satisfying to me that I can be paid for, too. And there's nothing wrong with it as long as you don't become a monster. Like, if, like, uh, there are people who their ambition rules them, and that's not a good thing. And there are people that just, like, you're as long as your ambition is kind of, like, pushing you along rather than forcing you to run over other people or choose, like work over family, you know, or something like, like, I can't, there, you tell, you listen, hear about, you know, great artists or filmmakers or whatever, who they pay no attention to their families. And like, I can't really do that. But so if it's one of the things where it's like, well, if it, if the choice is between being like the the top of my industry and having a family, like I'll choose having a family, but it doesn't have to be, I can have it in the middle. I can have a family and be like, well-respected and well-known to the, to enough people that, it's enough, you know, that kind of thing. And I know it's just, very, it's, it sounds very abstract to say it that way, you know. No, you know.
0: That, that's the beauty of having a wife. No, I,
1: <laughs> <laughs> I really. No, the thing mean. is, I don't, want, like, I, don't, I don't want to be one of those guys who, and this happens a lot with, and it's one of the reasons I don't do stand up very much. Partly because it's tiring and I just don't have the discipline for it, but because it takes you away from home nights for the most part.
0: Absolutely. And, it's why I quit. I mean, that was how I was making my living. Mm-hmm. And I quit because of that. Um, I also think in your case, you know, I think everyone knows you were a monster to begin with, so... Oh, yeah, yeah.
1: Well, it helps that I I came right out of the gates as a terrible person. And people already... I already have a reputation as a horror show. So people are like, all right, this is what we expect. It's like Picasso, for instance, could, like, put out cigarettes in people's faces, I assume. People are like, well, we know he's a bad guy. He's a great artist who's also... A, he's also really mean to people, but we know that, so...
0: Yes, I think no one... I've never heard anyone sort of associate Mensch... Uh, lovely human being, good egg. These no. are terms I never hear associated with you, Emily. No,
1: no, it's always, yeah, it's supervillain number one. Yeah. Uh, scum of the earth.
0: Yeah. Um, and diva, actually, a lot. Diva
1: is very, yeah, that's been used. Um, but also avid, which is diva backwards. Oh, They've, nice you know. Snow. So that's, avid is not so bad, you know, I, to I'm have very, a, a it's deep interest that. in something. It's just <laughs> the flip side of being a diva. Because what is a diva but someone with a real passionate interest in... Being an asshole. Yeah, I guess being an asshole, yeah. <laughs>
0: Um, I I do want to just frame things for folks who don't know you yet because...
1: (laughs) Like, we're like 100 (laughs) hours in and you're like, let me introduce my guest. (laughs) Let me tell you, my guest tonight is... Now that now that we've got now that we've we've burrowed deep into his mind, <laughs> let me tell you who this has been. Um let me let me burrow deep into the mind of the, the, the Menchie Diva. I assume you'll I assume you'll you'll cut this and put this in the beginning. And then <laughs> no. you'll say like, how did we get here? <laughs> no. Let's stay let's flashback. Let's take a look, shall we?
0: Let's take a flashback. Elliot was born a twin um yep. he went to nyu tish although he had already formed this deep relationship with uh, anne hathaway in childhood a- according in Jersey. to wikipedia according to wikipedia we're just good IMDb. friends actually
1: we're not even that <laughs> like she's not even someone i knew very well but uh it's become just a running joke you know and if she appears on the if she's a guest on the daily show my mom was always like so did you go say hi to annie and like no i don't really know her like we have nothing to say to each other and my mom gets really mad
0: um, and then you went on to become part of an improv improv group, the Hypocrites,
1: or a sketch group. Sketch, sketch group. group. I
0: apologize. No, there was that's okay. no improvisation taking there was, uh, sense. There was a little taking, bit of
1: improvisation taking
0: sense. There was no improv- improvisation taking sense.
1: Take taking a sense.
0: <laughs> none of none of what I said made sense. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, yeah.
1: There you go. No, it's we were we had a couple sketches that involved some improv, but it was mostly mostly sketch writing and like writing a sketch, memorizing it, figuring out the physical business putting up shows, you know. It was, a, it was as written as we could get, you
0: know. And while you were doing that, was that concurrent with doing your own talk show?
1: Sometimes. Okay. The, uh, I did, uh, so it really depended on where the space was, and I lucked into the, the, the top, the best way to get space to do a comedy show, which is to be friends with somebody who's running a comedy theater, which was the case uh, when I was doing a talk show called The Midnight Kalen, Which eventually became the primetime Kalen and the new Kalen show.
0: Wait, let me ask you. Just sorry, because you go from midnight Kalen and primetime Kalen. I get that because that's about what hour you're going to be able to see this show. Yeah, yeah. Why did you then switch to the new Kalen?
1: We changed to to a different location, and it just felt like we could do it at any time we wanted if we didn't mention the time in in the name of the show. (laughs) So we couldn't like the midnight Kalen had to be at midnight, which it was, and the primetime Kalen was like a little bit. Higher up, but with if it didn't have the time, you could do it whenever. Yeah, yeah. When I say higher up, I meant like higher up on a visual image of a calendar that's a daily schedule. So earlier would be the one word you would use to describe higher up on a visual calendar of a day.
0: Uh, these are all but, late night talk shows, and you did that with Eric...
1: With Eric Marczczak. Yeah. And so he was, he used to, ran, he ran a, ran a space, he ran a couple different comedy spaces in the city, a place called Above Kleptom- Kleptomania and a place called... Juvie Hall, and Juvie Hall is where we did those shows. But, uh, and this is
0: when you were in college?
1: This was right after college. So, like, I started doing sketch with my sketch partner, Brock Mahan, as the hypocrites, like the summer before my last semester of college. And our first show was at, like, the Barnes Noble Employee Talent Night at the Barnes Noble I used to work at, which is no longer there anymore. It's been turned into a Trader Joe's Uh but the uh, this is
0: so funny. But, uh, oh, the, uh, wait, the one in Chelsea?
1: Yeah, the one in Chelsea, yeah. I used to work there at the information desk, and it, it closed down a number of years ago. And, but uh, the, and we started performing at Eric's different spaces, and then he had a theater called Juvie Hall, and by this point I was a production assistant at The Daily Show. And uh, at Juvie Hall, he said, I have this space... I can't rent it out on Friday nights at midnight. Like I, I'm having trouble finding people who want to use it. So do you would you want to do a show there? And my one rule was I want to do as little prep for each show as possible because I was so used to doing sketch where we needed to memorize everything. There were a lot of props to bring with us. We needed to stage it. We needed to do promotion when we weren't when we were putting up a show at like a theater space we rented out. It was just a lot of prep work. And I had a day a day job. And so it was like if I can do as little prep work as possible, like I'll book like three guests an episode, or two guests an episode, and we'll will come up that evening, before the show, we'll come up with like bits we can interrupt the main show with. And otherwise, I'm going to make it up as much as I can as I go along. And it meant that the shows would be anywhere from like an hour to two and a half hours long, because I would have no idea how much time was passing when I was on stage. But I ended up doing those for a long time. And the shows that we were like, we need to, there's no way to get people in here unless it's really cheap. And we also had pizza. So it was tickets for $3, and then in the middle of the show, we would have a break, and we would order pizza, and people could come on stage and get pizza, and then take it back for the second, or for like the last third of the show, you know. Um, but it was a show that was also very much about, like, me talking about whatever was going on with me at the time. Um which that
0: was, sounds very improvised.
1: Yeah, yeah, the show itself was very improvised. And it was like, I knew at a certain point that, that he had, a like, a... Um, the guy who was in the booth, a friend of ours named Joe Garcio, he would have a couple different sound effects that we would have agreed upon, and he could interrupt me. Actually, I don't even know if I knew what the sound effects were, but we'd know that there'd be interruptions. Like, this segment will have an interruption in it, but I don't know where in the segment it's going to happen, and I don't know exactly what it's going to be sometimes. And so he would play a sound effect, or, like, a character would come out, and I'd have to react to that in some way. So This, what
0: it, this sounds so ideal.
1: It was great, and it was fant- it was really a way of, like, developing myself as a performer and as a persona in a space that was very comfortable because the only people who were coming to see it were friends, if anybody. You know, sometimes there'd be like three people in the audience. And only once, I think, did we ever cancel a show because nobody showed up. Uh, But it was really good because it was a very comfortable space that I was putting very little money or pre-effort into. And I could just, like, figure out what I was doing as I went along. And I did it for, you know, a couple years. uh, Just, like, Every like every month, like a couple Fridays a month.
0: In addition to just teaching me the word pre-effort, um, <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to ask you how much of this was deliberate? Like sort of now in hindsight, you're you're uh, doing sketch and improv, so you're learning how to collaborate, learning mm-hmm. how to be comfortable on stage, and then at the same time you're getting your foot in the door as a PA. Um, in a show, like you're doing all of the quote unquote or sorry they put quote marks in there but <laughs> the right things the right moves and it, it's something in hindsight I can look at and say like that was so smart to be making friends collaborating mm-hmm. figuring out what you like to do do I like to be on stage do I like to be behind the stage how much do I like to improvise how much do I like to do stand up versus sketch and you know it just seems like you're learning all of these things how much of that was a deliberate
1: not not very much it wasn't like I had it like I knew what I someday I wanted to write comedy and perform comedy. But I didn't know, it wasn't like I was like, I do this step, then this step, then this step, then this step. It was more like pieces falling into place and just taking advantage of what was available at the time. So like finding my friend Brock in college and saying like, we both like sketch comedy a lot, like we should do that together. And we formed a sketch group with two other guys and the other two guys never wrote anything and we never performed anything. It's because we didn't have enough material. And so it was like, well, the two of us are the only ones who are writing things, so we'll do shows. And just kind of through trial and error, figuring out how to put shows on, and then, like, I was started working. With, I really liked the. I was a big fan of The Daily Show beforehand. Like, I would watch it when I was in college. I'd watch it at 11, and I'd watch it at one when they reran it. And I'd, I also like
0: the idea that like you were like going out on a limb, being like, I know this is crazy, but I was a huge fan of The Daily
1: Show. <laughs> well, it's but it, like well, it's one of those things that's just surprising to me because. I've been watching it literally since the first episode. Like, I remember when it was for, I was in middle school, I think, and it was, they were advertising on Comedy not Central. not show off, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but like, I'm just saying, I've been there since before it was cool. But it was really like, uh, like I remember I have been watching Comedy Central purely because Mystery Science Theater 3000 was on that's, it, which I mean, is the best, if there's any, like there's no show I would have wanted to work on more than Mystery Science Theater 3000. Like that's, <laughs> that would have been my dream job. But uh,
0: you know, Frank Conniff is here.
1: Is where in New York? Yeah. right? yeah. I've never met him. I'd really like to oh, meet him someday. I'll
0: introduce you. Please I mean, do. That would be. I...
1: I would love that. Thank you. Sorry you... to
0: keep interrupting. I got, no, 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 i no. get so excited. But that's
1: that show. About. Like, you know, that more than any other. It's like I really wish I had been in the right place in time, but I was too young, and they did it in Minneapolis, and like, that was. You know, it's not like you go to Minneapolis to look for work. Like you, it's. They all came from that region for the most part. But anyway, uh, so the. But, like, I was a big fan of the show, and when I was, of Daily Show, and I remember they advertised this new show, and I started watching, and I really, and I liked it when Craig Kilborn was on, but I liked it a lot more when Jon Stewart was on, and I had been a fan of him since I was young, when he was doing, like, You Wrote It, You Watch It, and things like that on MTV, Um, and so I was excited when he took over that, took over the show, and the, but I never thought I would work there. I hoped I would work at a place like that someday, and... When I was in college, one summer, I interned at a film development company like they would it was a director, and this was his private company to look for projects he what could was it, make. Called? it was called I think it was called Talking wall Productions
0: and who was the director
1: and, um, I feel bad I, I don't remember what his name was. I didn't interact with him very much okay um,
0: sounds like it was a really pivotal time in your life
1: well, but there was I learned a lot about like I did a lot of reading screenplays that came in hmm. unsolicited and I learned a lot about what a screenplay reader wants to see which for instance is like not a lot of text and things like like things White that they the can page. read quickly yeah <laughs> and I and I would be and I was going to school for screenwriting and they would say like don't hand in a script that was just dialogue 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 like break up the dialogue with with occasional screen directions but when I was reading them I just wanted to fly through it so I would be looking for ones that were full of dialogue but, uh, which is not visual, like it wouldn't make a good movie, but it was made it a script that was very easy to read you know
0: it, and have you do you feel that that was correct that having uh as a screenwriter, do you feel that focusing on the dialogue versus the stage direction unless you're a auteur, is the right way to go?
1: I think if you're a first time screenwriter, then yeah, because you just want it to be something that's easy to read and gets across the story, and you know you don't want to put a lot of elaborate camera movements or anything like that in because people will be like, oh, great, yeah, this guy's telling me how to make this, fantastic. Um, but I remember what part of the job was going through the trades and like, just making a note in their database of what companies had deals with what other companies. So like if, you know, I remember once, like if Universal signed a deal with some production company for like th- a first look deal or three movies or something like that, I would put that in their database. And then there was a big full page ad in Variety. That was like congratulating The Daily Show on being nominated for an Emmy, I think. And I was like eighteen, I think. I, uh, I must have been eighteen that summer. No, it was nineteen that summer. And I like tore that out and I put it up on my wall, my in my old bedroom, my mom's house, and because I was like, I just like this show. Like they don't sell posters for this show, so this is the closest I'm going to get to a poster for it. And years later, when the first time I my. my then, girlfriend, now wife, went to my mom's home with me, and she saw that there. She was like, "What like did you like if you could tell him that you that he'd be writing for the Daily Show you know, or working for the Daily Show this many years later, like would he believe it?" And I was like, "Of course not. Like young me would never believe it." And so it's just amazing I have to remind myself that because it seems like such an improbable thing to go from being a fan of the show when I was a, basically a kid to eventually becoming a writer and then about to start as head writer at the show and like working every day with people that I really idolized for a number of years and, and still impressed by all the time you know it's really it's like a it's just a crazy thing but there was no it's almost like it was so unbelievable to me that it would ever happen that way that I couldn't formulate a plan to get there
0: so let me ask so it was you ju- so it's just
1: taking advantage of opportunities that opened up so and uh to go back to the original question, you know, that was a very long-winded uh, story way of saying that it was, there was no plan, but it was just, like, if something came up that was an opportunity, I would take it, you know?
0: And would you hear about... So when you're a PA, did you hear, oh, there's a segment producer position opening up?
1: Uh, not exactly, but kind of. So, like, the... I intern there, and a PA position happened to open up, and the... And they, like, interviewed me for... They said, we'd like you to interview for this position, and I did, and I got it. And I had set... So this, and this is, the, this is the amazing PA to segment producer story, is uh, I had been a PA for about two and a half years, and they had said to me, how long do you see yourself doing this job? And I said, about three years. Like, if I'm not... If I haven't moved up at three years, then I'll go see if I can find a job somewhere else. And they were like, that seems fair. That seems fine. And so it was about two and a half years in, and I was getting really antsy to either to move up or do something else... And one of the other PAs, this guy named Jimmy Don, who is now a senior producer at the show, was also, he, he felt the same way. So because we felt like we knew the show and we knew the people there and we felt comfortable with everybody, we decided to like push ourselves a little bit. And so we, in our spare time without telling anybody, we wrote and shot and edited two like pitch segments. And Rob Cordry and Ed Helms, very, very like generously with their time, Agreed to be in them shooting, kind of like in the office when they had downtime. Uh, And it was very, and you know, I'm very thankful then that they agreed to do that. Yeah, I'm also going to
0: interject and just say that they. Because I know both of them, um, not intimately, but well enough to know that they sensed that you were smart and funny, and we're like, yeah, we'll do it with you guys.
1: Hopefully, I mean, like at the very least, they
0: didn't feel sorry for you. No, like, no, you know what? I don't think he's ever gonna lose his virginity. Let us like give
1: him something. Well, they were right about that part, <laughs> but they, it but it feels, they, um, it shows you how important it is to like just be nice to people and like get along with people, because I think a lot of it was like, oh, these are two guys that like we get along with, and we, you want to help out people that you like, you know, and. So they, so we made these and then we dubbed them to videotape and then left the tapes on the desks of like the executive producers and with a cover letter saying like we think that we're capable of more, so like here's an example of what we, th- what we can do. And they...
0: Signed and anonymous.
1: Si- yeah, signed, <laughs> signed a secret admirer. Uh, that would have defeated the whole purpose. That would have been terrible. We were like, it's gonna, we're going to look like jerks if we do this, so we won't put our names on it. And I can just page whoever made these, like, please call, you know, this number. And so the executive producer at the time was a guy named Ben Carlin, who's on Modern Family now. And he calls into his office and he said, these are really good, and we're going to be expanding the production department. We're about to move into a new building. We're going to expand the production department. So we want to promote, we're going to make you associate segment producers, and you're going to start doing producing rather than being PAs. And we're like, this is great, but... The promotion doesn't take effect until after our July break, and we're moving buildings. So during the July break, you still need to come in and help us move some furniture between buildings. So it was like, oh man, <laughs> they squeezed out like the last bits of PA work from us. But that was it. So it wasn't like they announced, and it was different when I was submitted to be a writer. Like they announced to the staff, like we have an open writing position, and we're going to let staff submit for it, which they used to not do. But, uh,
0: I, and very strongly. I mean, I know that there'd be people who are writing assistants who, who got passed over and, and, by the way, went on to have, still
1: trium- went on to have triumphant great careers. and yeah. some might
0: say even more glamorous careers in, in one place. I don't know if I'd say more glamorous. <laughs> um, perfectly perfectly, referring
1: fu- to Brendan, perfectly fine <laughs> careers. Brendan's doing great.
0: But. Um, but, you know, I mean, that happens. It, it goes in one or the other direction, it seems. Either people like to promote within and say, you know us. Mm-hmm. It's comfortable. We can um, work with you to get where we need you to get um, much more easily. Mm-hmm. Like, and I've, as an outsider who's desperate to get in to shows, I actually <laughs> completely understand the benefits of hiring from within because you've built up the, the knowledge. You the have creative. the
1: institutional knowledge yeah, of the place. And it yeah, and it's a
0: great deal. Like, it's just, it is that much easier because you're still going to have to pick up yeah things within the actual job the logistics of that actual job
1: hmm but there are some places that and The Daily Show was like this for a while with writing that don't want anyone and from the inside
0: why was that They'd...
1: I'm not sure I think I don't know if it was because they wanted new voices they wanted more experienced people they wanted people maybe who weren't totally who weren't their minds weren't already bound by the structure of the show and would bring in new ideas I don't really know what the thinking was and it was a long time ago now that 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 policy was overturned so I can't say for sure but uh and since then a couple other writers have been have moved up from the inside and it's but that other in yeah, other Yeah, a
0: writing assistant moved up from the inside.
1: Yeah, Hallie Hagland, who I've shared an office with for a number of years now, uh, who and who is a close friend, unlike Ann Hathaway. Uh she was a writer's assistant and then became a writer. Lauren Sarver, who was a segment producer and is now a writer. But uh the and in other departments at the show, a number of people have moved up. So it really feels like you have generations of people who kind of have moved up around similar times and go from being the lowest level to getting close to the higher levels. But, uh, but, but, the, but that was the only time when they were like, we have an opening, so if you want to submit to it. Before that, it was just a matter of, like, happening to be lucky that there was an opening when I was ready for there to be an opening.
0: I you know? totally understand what you're saying. Yeah. And so you applied once and, and got it that first time?
1: Yeah, which was another lucky break. You know, I must have written... Or I like a better packet than I think it was, but uh, the I but it was I think they had I it was decided on the basis of the strength of the packets, but I think it helped a little that I was not unknown to them. You know, like I think usually now they do. There's a couple rounds of submission, and then in, they interview a couple people. And in my case, they didn't interview me. Partly, I think, because they just knew me. I'd been working there for... They
0: had interviewed you. Well,
1: kind of. <laughs> but it had, I'd, I'd already gone through, like, a six-year interview in previous positions, you know. And so, like, with taking over the head writer job, which I'm super excited about, like, there was not an interview there. But again, it was I've been writing there for over five years. There so, wasn't you know, an
0: interview to be head writer?
1: No, they, they called me in, and they said, you know, the current head writer is leaving, and we'd Where's like you to take the position. He's going to be... Executive producing and show running, John Oliver's new show. Oh yes, yes, yeah. yes,
0: yes. Okay, he's a Which children's is a great book author.
1: Uh, Tim, yeah he, yeah, he wrote he wrote a series of uh, where he would do a recurring series for uh, Mad Magazine called Planet Tad, and they wrote they did a book version of that, yeah. uh, and it's good stuff. I mean, he's a fantastic writer. Like his leaving will be a huge blow to the show that I will not fill in any way, but uh, I'll do my best to. But he's really great, and he's been. A really good head writer a really great head writer so it's what's
0: the difference between a head writer and a because um, you know when you talk about his writing skills i mm-hmm. guess i i assumed that the head writer was more of a managerial position for the
1: most part it is but you still are contributing creatively to the show and uh just at later stages than in, in the script writing process than in the beginning stage it's like the staff writers handle things for the most part in the beginning stages and the head writers and the head writing executive producers handle things kind of in the later stages, um, and then and John is watching over everything the whole time and giving notes. And then at the la- final stage, he does the, the most intensive rewrite. So like there's still writing involved, and you need to be a writer. But there's a lot more management, and communication, and things like that. I'm still learning a lot about the job, though. So
0: it seems like creatively, it would be even. Um more exciting because if you're handing them up i'm just like picturing a um when they do the baton when when the runners uh the 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 relay Mm -hmm. it feels like so the the writers staff writers would be the first people in the relay then they pass the baton to the head writer and then you pass the baton to John. Yeah,
1: it's kind of like that. That's a, that's a good way to put it. Except that... If
0: writers were athletic. Except that athletic.
1: it's more like... Except it's like that, yeah, if it, except it, we would all be dead from either heart attacks or out of breath, or our legs would break underneath us. they just snap like horses, you know? But uh, it's except that at each stage, John is saying, like, hand the baton to him that way. You know, like, you hand the baton that way. Like, it's not like he is d- disinterested until the final stage. He is giving notes at every stage and very much the source of what comes up on the show as well as the final iteration of what what's going to be on the show. He's very like nothing nothing happens on the show that he has not finished and usually has started, you know. It's very and there's something very exciting about like I should I should want to work on a show where the host is just like a suit who comes in and reads whatever, but it's much more exciting to work on a show where you're working for someone who is this kind of like brilliant, creative figure who can,
0: it's everything. who comes
1: up with ideas and has, and knows what he's doing, and you know, and your writing becomes better because you're writing for someone who has, who can do that job well and better than you probably, and has higher standards and has a creative spark that, if you were writing for someone who just comes in and says the lines and leaves, it just wouldn't, the excitement wouldn't be I, there the same way.
0: The excitement, the um, learning curve, like you're in a very Blessed position, and it's not just because you're writing for a hit show, and it's not just because you're writing for a show that's really funny. You're in a blessed position because you have an actual mentor, and it's not just John. It feels like the other people you work with. Well,
1: there's there's a lot of people, that, more people that I can really name in one podcast, unfortunately, who like have really shaped me as I've I've been there now for. I started I was I started as an intern when I was 20, and I just turned 32. Earlier this month, and I've been
0: congratulations by the way. Oh, thank
1: you, thanks. That was probably my <laughs> finest achievement was not was just giving in to the passage of time, allowing it to have its way with me, uh, so I could become the, the grizzled thirty two year old sitting before you. But uh,
0: with the cherubic young face. Yeah, well, that's <laughs> the thing is, I
1: still look like I'm like eighteen though. But uh,
0: one of the few times where I actually do need you to let me know where you are in your life
1: cycle. <laughs> <laughs> I had I before recording this, I had lunch with a friend of mine from college who I hadn't seen in a while. And she was like, you look younger than you did before, <laughs> That's
0: true,
1: which is weird. But uh, the, there have been a lot of people there who have helped me, like kind of shepherd me along and taught me how this works and how to do things better. And I feel like I've earned that from them through hard work and like being a pleasant person. But also mildly pleasant, mildly pleasant, still a diva, still a monster diva. <laughs> But uh I
0: like Supervillain 1. Supervillain number 1. <laughs> like, yeah. You were like so clearly had been honing on this particular part in a film by well, Michael I li- Bay that I haven't <laughs> played yet where you're like I am Supervillain number 1 in this scenario well, and not number I've 2. I've become
1: very enamored <laughs> lately of putting number 1 on things. It's like a like feels like a very Japanese way of like heightening a name so like the the uh, I I did a thing for the Fly House a while ago where I was wearing a hat that said, number one boy detective on it, and like I was thinking about, I want to get a T-shirt. I don't know they make them anymore. I want to get a T-shirt that says like number one super genius on it, or like number one lovable scamp. Like I love putting number one, <laughs> number one in front of things. I
0: actually just adore number number one lovable scamp, but I I also find it very insider in a different way. That like I remember looking up Ben Stiller's sister Amy Stiller, who's really funny, but has just not had the same career as her her brother or mm-hmm. parents. And I would see her in his films and it would be like waitress number two. And I was like, God, he doesn't even love her enough to make her wait. <laughs> She's not one. even the first waitress. <laughs> so sorry, <I'm... laughs> sis. Maybe next
1: time. You <laughs> so just when... didn't bring the juice that I need for waitress number one.
0: So whenever you say that, that's what I'm thinking. But I also can imagine you're like, I will not be Robin. I will be <laughs> you know, you yeah. can be Batman and not Robin.
1: Well, we'll see. But uh that's but maybe Batman number one. Batman like I just Robin. love throwing number one in things. But uh the, but there's so many people there who feel like I feel like I'm not going to leave the show for a good while, you know. But you're not the, going to,
0: you're not planning to be like, let me check this box off and let me go on to the, you know, I've got some movies. No, not at all. I mean, there's
1: shows. other things I want to do someday, but like when like an amazing opportunity is handed to you and you don't even have to like change your commute, like you don't think about what the next step is. And one of the, like the. When you start something new, like it, you know, it's you learn the new thing and you learn how to do it well before you start thinking about where you're going to be next. It's, I, there's a little bit of, I have a little bit of uh, the opposite because that I think I get from my grandmother. My grandmother, when she still drove a car and went to do things and stuff before she was unable to do that anymore, she always, whenever she got somewhere, she'd immediately start thinking about when she could leave from that place. And she lived in White Plains and I lived in New Jersey and she would drive to my family's house from White Plains, which is probably like an hour, hour and a half drive at least, on like a Saturday morning, and she'd stay for like an hour, sometimes like 50 minutes, and then she's like, well, I have to go, I have to go, and then she'd drive back home, and you get on the phone with her, and you can tell like after minute one is over, she's thinking about when's the call going to end, because I have something else I want to do next, and I've been trying to fight that urge within me. like
0: Yeah, to live in the present. Exactly,
1: to live in the present and to really appreciate and go after the thing that I have right now, and do that as best as I can. And because it's very easy to think about, when you have ambition, it's very easy to think about, okay, what's the next step? Or even if you're like my grandmother and you're just like, if you go to a party and you're like, well, if I arrive now, I can leave by 10, you know. Then I can do this other thing that I don't even really want to do that badly, but if I do it at ten thirty, I can leave by eleven thirty. You know.
0: Which brings us back full circle to my initial question to you, which is you've gone. Which from... is your
1: name is Ellie Kalen and you. And, <laughs> oh, but I, I was saying that. So there, when I when I eventually leave, it'll feel like leaving, like school, or like leaving home, basically, like that. Almost more than when I left home to go to college, it's gonna feel like leaving home and growing up and and going somewhere else. So like. My it's almost like my becoming head writer is like me coming back home after college and living in the basement for a while. You know, like I'm putting off growing up and leaving home for a little bit longer. But
0: you don't see you know. it as a, a major uh, career.
1: No, it is that too. Well, there is but it's, it's exciting to be like to be entering that level of position because it's a it's a totally different animal and it's a very exciting thing. But at the same time, it's there's something very comforting about knowing that. I get to do that at a place where I know everybody, and I know how it works. And it's been such a continuous growth process for me working there over the past, you know, like ten, eleven years, however long it's been. That the it's just gonna be, it's gonna be a hard it's gonna be a hard move someday in the in the future, years from now, when I if I do something else, and it'll feel very much like leaving, you know, leaving a family to go. You know, make my name off in the the gold fields or something. You know, so
0: you've had such a smooth ride, and I would imagine. Yeah, I've I'm lucked out. You really? I really
1: can't. People ask me, they're like, "What what what should I do? What can I do to get a job like yours?" I'm like, "I don't know. Like, start out early, <laughs> and then and then just stay there and, and let and people can promote you if they want to. You know."
0: Well, but but maybe that. But they're... it's but I
1: but I'm very lucky in that I haven't had to leave to keep moving up, and a lot of it is is factors that I could never control myself.
0: I also think there were conscious decisions um, made or maybe just decisions made, whether they were conscious or not. Um, So something like switching to head writer for most writers, I imagine, is actually a much more difficult um, transition because being a really good writer doesn't necessarily make you a really good manager. But because you've produced on the show as well and even been a PA Mm -hmm. on the show, I feel like you understand so many different hats of what people are wearing
1: hopefully i mean it, i think it definitely helps me a little bit that i've been in other departments and i know how they work and and but we'll see we'll see if i have the skills to transition to, man- transition to management which i hope i do but the definitely i am glad that i had those that those other experience, experiences at other jobs at the same place so that i'm not just coming from as much as I would have loved it at the time if when I graduated college they said like how would you like to be a writer at the show and I would have been like great of course I wouldn't have I wouldn't have been like I want to put that off for a little bit so I can get some experience in other jobs. You know what? I'll tell you what. I'll be a PA for a couple years and then I'll do producing then I'll then I'll be a writer. If they had offered it to me I would have taken it. But and there's a reason they didn't offer it to me because there's I didn't deserve it yet. But uh the it does help now. It's one of those things where like uh for instance, my dad is a like I say he's a professor of sales and marketing, and he was in the marketing business for about thirty years. And I don't think he ever liked it as much as he would have liked to. But he loves teaching. Like he loves being a professor, and he's a really great professor. And he said to me, "If I but if I hadn't done one, I couldn't couldn't do do the other now. Like if I hadn't done the th- put in my thirty years at marketing, I wouldn't be able to teach it now. And so like." As much as you wish, you you want to like short circuit and jump to the, jump to the thing you want to do like you need to do the steps in between so that you can do it. It's very Karate Kid that way. When, you know.
0: I, when I was saying Smooth Ride also, I was referring to you had a column for a little bit at, the, in Metro, which is oh, a, yeah, right. a local newspaper. Which is and a, it's
1: a free, weekly news, a free daily newspaper, but I had a weekly column in it, yeah. Where like you walk past a, like a, a wire mesh basket of them as you walk onto the subway and you could take one if you like, you know.
0: And I also, you know, even then when you get fired from your job, you're the only person who gets fired, and then it causes such a storm that they have to hire you back.
1: Yeah, that was great. I, I <laughs> haven't thought about that in a while.
0: So even, even what could have been a negative experience was entirely um, not just positive, but I think fruitful.
1: Yeah, well, it's, it, was a, it was a net positive. I've had, you know, like, and I'm very thankful for it, and, and think about it a lot. I've had a very lucky path up. You know, and hopefully that doesn't mean the other shoe is going to drop. This will be this will be poignant if, like, in ten years my life has fallen apart. No. And I'm listening. It'll be like, um, like guess, like, Crap's Last Tape, the Samuel Beckett play, where I'm listening to, like, myself talking about how great things are, and meanwhile I'm just so sad, and I'm like, <laughs> stop, rewind, play that part again. It's such a great play, too. But, uh, so, but I don't want to be in that. I'd rather be in a different play. I'd rather be in, like, a worse play with a happier ending. But, uh... But yeah, that's the. Um,
0: when you got uh, you got fired for making a joke though about the newspaper industry. Well, that
1: specific newspaper, the the Metro. Yeah. I had done so. I was writing a weekly topical humor column. Yes. And they and I did one that was about newspapers being dead, like that newspapers were over. There's nothing you can do with them except I think I had a joke in about like you can't. The only thing you can do with them is wrap fish in. The, the only thing they can do, nothing else can do, is wrap fish in it. But like soon, I'm sure Apple will have a product that does that. And I talked about how like it's shown by the fact that this newspaper literally has to be shoved into people's hands as they walk on the subway. And that and I remember saying to my editor like, "Is this okay?" Like, and the editor was like, "It'll be fine." And then the Metro is an international organization headquartered in, I think it's either Denmark or Sweden, some country where. Where everyone is much blonder and paler than they are here, and uh, they Not maybe paler. maybe I'm looking at Both of us right now in
0: the dead of winter. We're pretty pale, that's true.
1: <laughs> but we're, well, we've got a swarthy paleness of, of, the, of the Russian shtetl. That's, that's a different type of paleness.
0: Our as speaks of as an opposed, unwell paleness. Yeah, exactly.
1: As opposed to the healthy kind of blank sheet <laughs> yes. paleness of the of the Dane or the or the Swede. Yes. But uh, the and the but the head of the company of the international company. Happened by chance to be in New York that day, and I guess was like, "I'll take a look at what's in my newspaper today." What? And I imagine him like taking a sip of coffee and like spit taking it onto the paper, and was very unhappy. And fi- I was told I was fired, and my editor—I don't remember if she was fired or if she decided to quit—and uh, then somebody told some somebody at New York Magazine about it, and they ran like a very small blurb, and enough people wrote in, many of them probably, like, relatives of mine, saying, like, where's Ellie Kalen? Bring him back. And so they brought me back, and I did it for, like, another year or two, I think. And eventually, I stopped because it was taking up too much time. And by the, by the time—I was, was a segment producer at the show when I was writing that, and it was, like, great to have an outlet for jokes that I was writing. And when I stopped, I had become a writer, and it was like, I don't need this anymore. Like, I've been— I was doing it still while I was a writer for a little bit, but it was like, I don't need to do it anymore. Like I, I'm writing j- topical jokes for a living, and I no longer need this other outlet.
0: What I found interesting about it, though, is it spoke to what actually is edgy in comedy writing. And people will talk about edgy as if it's talking about racism or homophobia, and then it ends up just being an excuse to make a racist or homophobic comment or something yeah, like I that. I do plenty of that, yeah. <laughs> but what I think is actually um, turns out to be edgy or risky, really, which is a more accurate word, is commenting on one's own industry. yeah, And the one thing that is always taboo is, is making jokes about your own industry. And Andy Kindler, who's a very funny comedian, I think in some ways will never be fully successful because he bites the hand that feeds him, even though his jokes are very funny on the topic. yeah. Um, in many ways, our industry is very stodgy and very repressed. And it's well, it's very rare that people can.
1: Nobody likes nobody likes paying someone to tell them how crappy they are, <laughs> and yes. like, no, that's even, fair. And even when it's true, but there, it's there are certain things that, certain things that are like, like you're saying, are okay, edgy jokes, and certain things. I find I was talking to my grandmother, like this was a couple of years ago, I guess, and she was saying how you find everything on TV now, nothing's taboo on TV, and I was saying, like, yes, there is. Like, you, if you had, you couldn't do a show, honestly, advocate, like you couldn't do a sitcom. Or you could if you was public access. No network is going to give you money to do a sitcom about the end of the capitalist system. Or uh, America oh. as, of, as a truly failing country. Now, neither of which I believe in. I just want to say that here. But like, there are certain voices that are so outside the pale of the, what we assume for our lives. And they're not about racist or homophobic or sexist things. Because those have been like colonized through irony and... Yeah, and people will say things that are racist or sexist, but it's like, but it's funny because it's racist, right? Like we all know <laughs> it is, so it's okay for me to say it. And like I'm guilty of doing that kind of stuff sometimes in my private life, but I wouldn't want to do it professionally. But uh but there are certain things that like you couldn't if you had humor that was calling into question like certain basic tenets of how people live their lives, nobody would be interested in that. Like you would you would get fired because if you did it if you did a like, you could only do the most basic show about a corporation being evil because... And you'd have to make it so cartoonish and so overblown because otherwise the corporation's not going to want to hire you to say how crappy they are, you know? It's too vague. That's true about Andy Kandler. I've, his, I've been a fan of his for a long time. It's
0: so funny, but I, I just meant that, you know, the one thing... But that his I, but his
1: thing now is is... And it's the it difference between... Kind of it's almost the difference between him and, like... Ricky Gervais right now, yes. who I also like a lot. But Ricky Gervais has become kind of cultivated in a way. Where, like, the first time he did the Golden Globes, and he like, you people all stink. This is awful. And then, like, time set in, and people were like, let's have him back to do it again, and we'll show what good sports we are by laughing at his jokes about how bad we are. And it was like, ha-ha, oh, we did it again. Oh, Ricky. You know, like...
0: I would also say with Ricky, actually, it became hard um, to tolerate because... And I loved the original Office. I think yeah. it's one of the greatest shows. um, Ever. And extras is
1: a really fun show. And
0: extras is fabulous. Um, I actually found him difficult to tolerate because he is now part of the system, mm-hmm. and so that the self-effacing feels um, contrived and dishonest uh, when he says, "You guys stink," and it's like, "Well, you're also a multimillionaire now, who's really like benefiting from this system, so you're also part of it." So yeah, sort of there's a certain amount of that. Of
1: but I'm not, I'm I'm not a big fan of like calling people out for like. Selling out or being a part of a system, because when it comes down, it's. If, I am if, if they're
0: making fun of other people if for you're, doing that. Yeah, if your
1: whole <laughs> voice is, I'm pure and you're not.
0: That's what. That's I mean.
1: one thing, because there's a lot of. It's very easy to like, and I feel this a lot in comedy. When someone gets successful, everyone kind of turns against them. Yes. Because there's like a jealousy and a competitiveness now there, where like, if someone is work, if a friend is working for a show that you don't like, then it's like ugh that person but you know like work is work it's so hard to make a living as a as a comedian or a writer or anything that like anything any way you can do it and survive is is okay by me me too but unless but if there's a hypocrisy there that's a different thing that's all i
0: meant like specifically like when you are making fun of hollywood for being this elitist you know um, place that has no sense of the real world Mm -hmm. you also live in that place and have no sense
1: of the real world um but like with with the with the metro column when i was writing it for instance when i was writing that the one about newspapers it's not like i was like this is going to be edgy. Like, let me, I'm going to take some of the piss out of, this, out of this newspaper. It was more like, this is a goofy thing. Like, it was, and I thought it might be possibly off out of bounds because it was about that newspaper, but like, I wanted to write it because it felt like a silly thing. Like, I, I. I, I
0: thought it wasn't edgy. So I thought it was this oh, okay, banal good. comment. Okay, so let me just
1: explain well, why I, I brought it up. I know, I'd say banal. It was <laughs> well, pretty, now that I think about it, it was pretty avant garde. It's pretty.
0: <laughs> no, in all seriousness, I. As but it reader, was. But the
1: joke itself was so clearly goofy. You know, it was Well, not... the joke
0: was also had been done so much about the newspaper industry yeah, being a true. dying industry that was eating itself. That I, I think
1: I found a new angle on it. You know, brought <laughs> some new life into it. But... I,
0: but I didn't think that it was going to be risque. Is what yeah, I really yeah. meant. And and that you know you can read New York Times columnists who are quite serious who will joke about it. So I was shocked that you got in trouble for something that seemed to be. Um, an elephant that had been uh you know yeah in it was the not a, a new idea and had been letting everyone know hey i'm an elephant in the room
1: <laughs> hey <And> elephant <laughs> coming through watch out sorry hey, i'm right here in case anyone wonders on the elephant i'm right here
0: so i yes, you were showing a new angle to that elephant but but ultimately i was so shocked that you got and i that's why there was so much buzz on um the interweb because, the, because everyone it was else was the same right? basically that's yeah. exactly right but so, it was it
1: shows you how how like thin-skinned a corporate parent can be totally you know.
0: and to its discredit because then it had to to bring you back and it got you know or maybe to its credit because it got all these people being like i had no idea what metro was i thought it was you know something to uh, wipe my feet on before and now i'm going to read it <laughs> thought it was just um, something
1: that people threw on the <laughs> on the subway tracks and it caused fires and <laughs> yes. it clogged the drains yeah
0: um but that when i was joking and but being quite earnest about the fact that what equals risque in our business is is saying something um, about the business, is commenting on the business. Yeah,
1: there's a, there's a there's definitely a biting the hand that feeds you thing that like nobody likes to do it. And I and I can understand from the point of view, like I saying, of the people paying. Like I just fed you, why are you biting me? You know, yes, like absolutely. if you handed food to a cat and the cat bit you, you'd be like, why did you do that? But the other hand like a cat's job is not to make fun of things and, totally. and criticize stuff. You it's know.
0: why I appreciated that all of the negative um, vitriol that you were spreading about Sumner Redstone you did before <laughs> we were on air and I really appreciated it. Um, um uh, well. <laughs> um, I did want to... But it shows
1: you the difference between the thin skin and the thick-skinned thing where we, I worked on a John Hodgman segment recently that involved a joke about John Hodgman and Sumner Redstone being at a masked millionaire's orgy together and it said, uh, oh, we were having a in, in the Statue of Liberty, that they were having an orgy in the Statue of Liberty with masks. And he goes, I don't know who I was having sex with. Some woman who looked like Sumner Redstone with a mask on. <laughs> and like, that went by fine. Like, nobody cared about that. And it, partly because the joke is so goofy and also partly because I think that organization just has a thicker skin, you know, and is used to it more. And Sumner
0: Redstone has really nice legs. And so it's confusing. Oh,
1: sure, yeah. You could think he's a Beautiful man, yeah. yeah.
0: Um, I want to make sure that um, everyone checks out a video of you... Um, Imitating Andy Rooney, it's one of my favorites. Oh, yeah, thanks. <laughs> um, I, I, I'm sad that you are not getting um, that overpaid position because it seems like you would be perfect for it. Oh,
1: thank you. That would, that, would be, uh, that would be my dream job is to take over that position, but I think they decided they would rather have three minutes of high-revenue high ad time instead of less like a random guy complaining about stuff.
0: Well, let's hope that um, now that you're the head writer at The Daily Show, at some point... CBS may say, you know what, maybe he can fill this time slot
1: um, well, 8.56 8
0: to something 8, like 8 59? Some, oh,
1: seven. Something like, so, like 7. It's like 7.56. I
0: apologize. 7.56 Eastern I, I Standard mean, Time. I'm not offended.
1: It's not my show. But I was they, in Central yet. Time. Oh, okay. They, yeah, <laughs> yeah 8.56 Central. No, no, it would be like 6.56 Central, wouldn't it?
0: This is when you were talking before about when you guys were on the Flop House and you mispronounced something and yeah. pretend like then it's it becomes, correct. Yeah, then it becomes, yeah. I'm right now trying to. <laughs> You're like, oh, no, no, I'm at a different time zone. <laughs> I watch
1: it in the ocean. That's, I'm usually mid-Atlantic when I'm watching 60 Minutes, so for me it's 8 to 9, not seven to not 7 to 8. I do that. It's I'm I only watch it on a boat. I live on a houseboat and I like to go in the international waters. So
0: Elliot, congratulations on um, uh, knocking your wife up and that is it, it, <laughs> oh,
1: <thanks. laughs> that almost sounded like I like you, you were getting you were just saying the word knocking. I was like, "Where's this going?"
0: <laughs> congratulations. It on, sounds violent that uh, way. Yeah. On, um, Becoming a, becoming a pop and um, really really exciting and um, also congratulations on becoming head writer of The Daily Show.
1: Thank you very much and uh, and thank you for having
0: me. That's it for this episode of Employee of the Month Show. Thank you to my guests. Thank you to all of you for listening. Thank you to Ian Mazoff for putting this together. Do come to a live show. Do subscribe online for more episodes. We have a lot of exciting ones coming. Um, and if you want to leave a review on iTunes, that would be awesome. I mean, it would be awesome if it was a good review, and it will be accepted as part of life if it's if it's only an okay review. Either way, thank you very, very much for listening, and Thank you for just being who you are. The special snow. Okay, we're we're t- we're ending it now. This is why. This is why you do short endings. This is why you don't keep going and going and going and trying the patience of everyone around you. Thank you.